You can open up to the book of James in the Bible. We're starting a new series, as Rob mentioned. Man, you'll see this as we get into the message today, but what we just sang, Let My Words Be Few, is, is a convicting song to sing. I hope that what goes on in this building, but more so what goes on just in our everyday life throughout the week, lifts up the name of Jesus and that we're really thinking about who we're singing to. We were just singing to the risen Jesus Christ. And so us uh, not rushing in with our words, us not rushing in with our judgments and our own wisdom is, uh, is a good practice to be doing. And, and I hope that as we sing, as we come and gather to worship week by week, that that would be uh, prevalent to us, that would be apparent to us. The book of James is where we'll be for the next several weeks. I want to take you back to 1989 for just a second. I was on a school bus. It was really a church trip. And I was, uh, I was probably midway back in the bus. And I looked to the very back. And my friend is back there, a close buddy of mine. And we were headed somewhere with the youth group. And he's sitting there facing the front of the bus. And there's about six or seven girls who are facing him. And he's got their attention on whatever he's talking about. And, and back in the 80s, you were allowed to ride in a bus without a five-point harness. Uh, they still let you do that. So they're all facing backwards toward him. He's facing towards me. I look back, and I give him this look, and I'm like, man, what's this guy got? I mean, something's going on with him that's, that's, that's clearly really good with these ladies. And, uh, and he kind of gives me a sheepish look a little bit. So I start moseying back to the back of the bus, if nothing else, just to learn from this guru of romance. So I sit back there, and as I start to listen to him, what I realize he's doing is this. He is explaining surfing to these girls. Here's the problem. He dresses like a surfer, buys clothes at a surf shop, talks like a surfer, drives a VW van. He doesn't surf. At all. And so he's sitting here describing the sport of surfing. And so he's in, he's mid-sentence by the time I pick up the audio on kind of what he's saying. And he's telling them that the kelp that's all around in the water, that's what you use to propel yourself out into the ocean. And I'm thinking, men, you don't even have to surf at all to understand. That's not really the truth. Otherwise, when there's no kelp, what happens? You just sit there, right? Here's what was going on in that moment, is he was talking about that which he really didn't know anything about. And you all have your own talk-is-cheap story, don't you? And sometimes they're kind of just humorous and maybe a little bit benign. Uh, sometimes they're really, really painful when we get into the talk-is-cheap. I think James is a guy that would be fond of that kind of saying, that, that talk-is-cheap. And we're going to kind of see some themes this morning. We're going to look at one verse. We're going to basically break it down this way. Uh, who is the book of James for? Who wrote it? And what's it about? We're going to do kind of an, of an overview a little bit of, of the book before we start taking it verse by verse. Who's it for? The first people it's for is hyperactive people. Mark Lowry says that there's two kinds of people in the world and God loves them both. Hyperactive and boring. And God loves both kinds of people. And uh, if you've heard anything about Mark Lowry, you understand that he's definitely in the first camp. But there are some of you who got in trouble for sitting in school because you didn't sit still in school, right? I routinely got this on my report card, and evidently it's generational. But I talked too much. That was, what my, that was what my teachers always said. And so a song like we just sang, where my words should be few, is one that rings true for me. But some of you are, I want to cut to the chase kind of people. I want action. Don't, don't tell me in long, drawn-out things. Just get to the point and let's get doing it kind of people. If you look at most of Paul's letters, Paul's letters are written to, to people. We went through the book of Ephesians not long ago. Ephesians was written to Christians, right? And it was written to a region of churches, essentially. And in most of Paul's epistles, here's what he does. He spends roughly the first half of the book on theology, on belief. Here is, Christian, what you should believe. Here is what's true. And then he spends the second half of the letter saying, now here's how you live that out. Here's the action based on that truth. And if you read most of Paul's work, that's how he does it. James, instead of doing a belief and then the action component, James is about 90% action. 90% action, maybe with 10% 
some of the uh, belief kind of thing going on. This last week, I was with one of my nephews, and I'm teaching him a game called Settlers of Catan. And some of you have played this game. The game takes, if you ever watch someone set this game up, it takes about 10 or 15 minutes to set the game up. Okay. Now, if, if a game takes that long to set up, what you know is that you're investing some serious portion of your life to play this game, right? And one of our rules is we say, if you're going to start this game, you have to finish it. You can't walk away mid-game because that's just frustrating to everyone. I'm explaining this to one of my little nephews, and I'm starting to walk through the explanation of the game. And here's what he said. He goes, why don't we just start playing? I'm more of a hands-on guy. <laughs> now, now, here's what's great about it. Um, we actually broke our own rule. All of us were kind of tired, and we actually ended the game early. Guess who was winning? He was. He was the one winning. He didn't really understand the game. He said, give me basically the, the basic bottom line, and then let's get to it. I have a hunch there's some of you in this room who are just like my little nephew. And this book is, is for you because it, it, it does that same sort of thing. Catch this. There's 108 verses in this. 54 of them contain imperatives. That means that on average, that, that, that there's an average of one call per action every other verse. So as you're reading, what you are going to see is a lot of things to do, calls to do. And what's, what's helpful with that is those of you who have a hard time with long, uh, logical, setting it up, building it on, that can sometimes be hard for, for people, especially with our shorter attention span Americana way of life. This book's for you. If this were a movie, the opening scene would be a car chase and an explosion. Not soft music, not dialogue, not character development, and no butterflies. That's James, okay? He's simple, he's to the point, he's short, he's direct. With such an emphasis on doing, here's the challenge. And here's what James has actually, we looked at this a few weeks ago in our apologetic series, that James was one of the last books to be admitted into the New Testament. And we, and we looked at that. You can go back and kind of hear the details of it. But there have been some, some criticisms of it. And, I, and we're going to dispel those as we walk along. I want, I want the scriptures to just speak for themselves. The Bible, we said this last week as well, that the Bible is about Jesus. It's a unified collection of 66 books that point to Christ and are unified in its message. Some have come along to say with James, well, no, James actually teaches that you are saved by your works. We're going to walk through the book of James, and I think that you'll see with me plain as day. That is not what James is saying. The abuse of James is this. If James is not only your favorite book, but your only book, what happens is you'll start to take James in isolation of other parts of the scripture. And what you will is you will potentially develop a mixed up theology. The abuses of it would be this. You could lead to religious elitism. That's a checklist mentality that says, look, there's 54 imperatives. I'm nailing it on 53, and I'm almost there on 54. Give me my A-plus Awana Boy Scout badge, whatever. And you just, you're the top-notch Christian because you've got it all checklisted out. Where's your hope? Where's your joy? Where's your identity? It's in your big, giant Christian star, right? So that's one of the, one of the negatives if you take James in isolation. The other thing that it could do is do this. It could form hypocrisy in someone, uh, being judgmental in someone. If you're nailing it on these 53 imperatives, which you're really not, by the way, but you think you are, what are you doing to everyone else around? You're keeping score, right? You're checking in on them. You're like, man, imperative number eight, Rick Plum. Step it up, buddy. I've got that one nailed. I had it nailed since 1979. You over there. And all of a sudden, you become these different things. Instead of being a grace follower of Christ, you're a graceless, hypocritical, judgmental person. Look at the words of Jesus. Just take them all, just read them straight through sometime. The harshest criticism are for those who think they're already good enough by observing religious rules. So, as we launch out into an action book, you're going to hear this over and over and over again that we can't take it in isolation. This is why teamwork is so important. Um, James stressed conduct. We're going to see that. He was actually called James the Just, evidently, because of his righteous lifestyle. Uh, and that was his niche. That was what he harped on and talked about. Let me throw some other names out at you. Paul emphasized faith. Peter emphasized hope. 
John emphasized love, both in his gospel and in his epistles, and Jude emphasized purity. Do you see why we need the body of Christ? Here's, here's what it is with, with us. In our staff meetings, in our community groups, in our church family, there are some of you that just have a certain mindset that is for purity, right? And separating yourself from the world and the holiness of God. Those are your favorite Bible passages. That's what you talk about. That's what you think about. That's what you study. Some of you are just lovers. You come along and you love the loving parts of the, of the story and, and you're gentle and you're beloved because you're so loving. And then the others of you are, are really um, prophetic and, and justice-oriented. And so what happens is, is that we need each other to sharpen one another. We need to have these different voices in the church. Churches can do this too, by the way. Churches can, can get so far veering over here and say, well, we're a grace church. We don't want to judge anyone. We want to... And at the expense of truth, they just want to mushy love everyone. What they find is that mushy love doesn't really hold together. And there's other churches over here who are saying, we know that we appear kind of prickly and that we're kind of rude and mean, but doggone it, we've got a corner on the truth. We've found it. And so somehow they, they, they juxtapose these and say that they're against each other. That's not true. The body of Christ is to be working together. Praise God for the book of James to be in our Bibles to, to look at these things. It's not just for hyperactive people. The book of James is also for the hurting And with the hurting, I would add the tempted. Are you hurting here today? Are you going through a trial today? Did you drag yourself in here and say, it's Sunday again, I think I'll go to church. I think I'll just be with God's people. I'm glad you're here. Man, what better place on a Sunday morning, a beautiful Sunday morning, than to be with God's people, to hear God's word read, and to to sing praises to the risen Jesus. We're going to look at this a little bit more detail later on, but... James is writing uh, to encourage and instruct those who are hurting. That's who he was writing to. He was writing to a persecuted people. He's writing to Jewish Christians who've been dispersed. They've been scattered. Remember why they were scattered out of Jerusalem? It's because of persecution. God took that and used that to, to spread the gospel. But he's writing this to encourage and instruct them in the midst of that. There's specific instructions, not only to the community, but to the leaders on what to do when people are hurting. What to do when people are sick. And what you'll see is a very simple, very direct, very straightforward call to prayer. It's beautiful. And it's, it's right there in the scriptures. I wonder how much money in 2012 has been spent by Christians going to a Christian bookstore and looking for answers in these two areas. I'm hurting, I'm feeling tempted, and I'm battling some besetting sin. Surely there's a conference that can help. Surely there's a book that can help. Surely there's some sort of plan that can help me out of this. We're a Bible church, which means I want you, church, to keep going back to the Bible. What a gift most of you possess on your bookshelf in the book of James that God's already provided for you. It's sitting there right under our noses, and yet sometimes we're, we're drawn to the latest and greatest. Read this book. It really helped me. It always concerns me when a Christian says, this book changed my life more than any other, and they're not talking about the Bible. I go, really? <laughs> that's scary. I mean, that's a That's a man or a woman writing that. Even if they quote a lot of scripture, the Bible ought to be the book that we're leaning on. If you're battling sin, James not only describes what the battle is about, but he prescribes solutions for winning. And it's beautiful. We're going to get into this uh, in, in a few weeks. But he's pointing to the greater desire that's there. Sin is about passions that rage within us. And the the Christian message is quite simply this. Don't be less passionate. Don't kill your passions. Don't put them under a rug. Rather, be more passionate. You're settling for way too small. And James lifts our eyes and says, man, go for the greater passion. It will squelch. It It will wipe out these other secondary passions that you're going after that do not satisfy. And he's going to talk very bluntly and plainly about that. All right. It's also for those who like tests. Now... Some of you are weird. It's test day and you're happy, okay? 
Uh, some of you are teachers and you're just sick. You like giving tests to people. Um, I know you are. Uh, no, because then it means you have to grade them later and you don't like that part. Um, but there's different kinds of tests, right? There's certain tests that I went into and on test days that I was happy about, it was the stuff that I knew. I knew that I knew it even. It wasn't even that I thought that I knew it. I knew that I knew it. And then tests are kind of easy, right? And, and there's other tests that you go into and you're fearful because you didn't put the time in or you put the time in and it just wasn't coming and you have no idea how it's going to go and so much is riding on this test. Now, take yourself out of school for a moment. Take yourself out of a job application for a moment and put it into life terms, right? There's so many different tests. The Bible repeatedly instructs us as followers of Jesus, to test our faith. Christians get in the little sport game of testing other people's faith all the time. Testing the genuineness of their faith. You know what the Bible says? It says, hey, test your own faith. Over and over and over again, we're called to do this. Now, think of something. Anyone ever received, you don't have to raise your hand, but just think about this. If you've ever received anything that, that, that turned out to be counterfeit, you thought it was of some value, but it turns out that it wasn't. Some of you have maybe had a counterfeit bill before. It was given to you. You went to try to spend it, and it wasn't worth literally the, the, the paper that you were holding because it was a counterfeit bill. Maybe you've had a jewel or a painting or something or, or an iPod that was actually made you know, somewhere else, uh, and, and you thought it was valuable, but it wasn't valuable. It was counterfeit. That can be really uh, not only frustrating but devastating. Take relationships. Relationships that you thought were genuine, you thought there was value to that, turns out there was counterfeit. Now let me take you to the single most important relationship you could possibly have, and that is the relationship with the Creator God. And the devastating effect of having a counterfeit faith, a counterfeit relationship with God. James is deeply concerned about this. James is deeply concerned that people are walking through life thinking they're on the road to life when in fact they're not. Thinking they're in relationship with God when in fact it's a counterfeit. Do you see how devastating that is? It's eternally devastating to be in that camp. And just because we're sitting in church, just because I'm preaching in front of a church, doesn't mean that we are safe and we're in and clearly we're talking about other people here. This is for us to test our faith. And we're going to walk through the scriptures, the book of James, looking at some of these tests that are there. Listen to the words of of, uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or sings to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does... If you have a Bible open to Matthew 7, you'd want to underline or circle that, especially in light of James. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are... Frightening words. Frightening words. A couple of words jump out. One is that many are going to be in this camp. Many are going to say the right things. Not only that, they're not doing this in the name of Wicca practices. They're not doing this in the name of some demon god from Egypt. They're doing this in Jesus' name. They're writing and doing their ministry in the name of Jesus. Not only that, they're actually doing many mighty works. And yet Jesus is going to say on Judgment Day, I never knew you. Depart from me. There's a counterfeit relationship that's possible and it's going to deceive many people. Now James would say this, it's not enough to know the will of God. Many people have a good theology and they know the right things, but they're not doing anything about it. We're frustrated by those people. None of us think that it's us, but it's someone because those people exist, right? And they just talk, 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 to talk, to talk, to talk, but never do. Now, here's, here's what Jesus adds a whole other layer. James says, man, you got to be doing it, right? Faith without works is what? Dead. Just dead. Jesus comes along and says this, and we're going we're gonna to 
We're going to stay in this a little bit as we go through the book. It's not even just doing something religious in the name of Jesus that's important. In fact, those who could be doing a lot of stuff in the name of Jesus might be in this camp that Jesus calls out and says, counterfeit, I never knew you. We do not have a relationship. Frightening. James, which is the book of action, says that even activity isn't enough, but the right kind, and that is obedience to the will of God. The book is a series of tests. Some of you are quality control type engineers. You're going to like this book in this sense. Uh, As a student, even though we don't tend to like tests and tests get a bad name, tests are actually really good because what they do is they're prepping you toward that final, right? And so you can see on a pop quiz how much you do or don't know. It's measuring your progress toward that. Instead of waiting to the final and going, gee, I thought I was doing great, you bomb the final and you flunk the class, right? Instead, pop quizzes and tests along the way help kind of mark you and say, you're on track. You do know this as, 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 as well as you thought or you're way off base. Get to work. You don't know this as well. Here's what's great about the book of James. James puts some things in front of us and says this. If these things are going on in your life, they're spirit-empowered, and, and that means that, that God's at work in you. If these things are not going on in your life, look out. Be in prayer. Humble yourself. Submit yourself to God. Here's a couple of things that he touches on. Suffering. I think probably nothing measures faith, maturity, and progress, and even what you really love, like trials. When you're in a trial, when you're suffering, what you genuinely love bubbles to the surface. We say we love different things, but sometimes in a trial, you know what your biggest love is? My comfort. God, your glory is no longer as important as get me out of this. All of a sudden, you can look in a trial and see, wow, Jesus, you have a lot of work to do. You need to have a lot of grace in my life because I'm not as far along as I thought. It also measures your, um, your progress. How about just your love, your love for one another? James touches very bluntly on how we treat one another. There is a couple of great We're going to be memorizing some different verses. It's voluntary. I'm not going to impose it on you like law. But I'm going to give you some key verses to memorize out of the book of James. There are some great family memory verses in this. There are some great couples, marriage, memory verses in this. I loved being in the home of a person in our church recently. And right in their kitchen area, right where the dinner table is, stenciled onto it is this great Bible verse. And I loved it because it was just like that verse is presiding over this table where I'm sure that with the family that they had, all of our families, there's struggles sometimes. And so there's, there's a Bible verse there for it. It also talks about um, our works, our speech. Any of you ever struggle with your tongue? The answer is yes. Okay. Um, some of you don't talk a lot. You still struggle with your tongue. Some of you talk a ton. You struggle with your tongue. And the, book, and the book of James comes along and says, man, we can tame every form of beast, but who can tame the human tongue? It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's set on fire from hell. I told you James was blunt, right? He just, he just lays it out there like it is. So our speech is going to be tested and checked out. Our conduct. How about the enemies that we battle? The flesh and the world and the devil are all mentioned in chapter 4. So we're going to be looking at that as well. Question for us, we're going to look at this as community groups this week, is this. Will we orient our life around comfort, the avoidance of pain at all cost, or with Paul and with James? Will we exalt in our trials? Are we going to rebel and run in trials, or are we going to say, Jesus, this must be from you because you're sovereign. I'm going to find you in this, and I'm not just going to endure it, I, I might be prone to think that I could endure a trial. Paul says this after praying three times for this thorn in his flesh. We don't know specifically what it is, but he'd seen such high and lofty things that God actually gave him a thorn in the flesh so he wouldn't get too haughty. He wouldn't think too much of himself. 
He prays, Lord, take this away. I don't want it. When the answer comes back that it's going to stay, he exalts in his pain, knowing that this must be bringing Jesus glory. Wow. I have a long way to grow when I read words like that. All right. It's not just for those who like tests. It's for biology majors. Uh, James, the author, and John Muir, I think, would have liked to have hung out if they were contemporaries. Um, like Jesus, James saw all truth as God's truth, and he found God's truth everywhere he looked. I'm going to give you a, a partial list here on the screen. You don't need to try and read it. I'll just give you some, some of the highlights. He talks about the wave of the sea. He talks about being tossed by the wind, shifting shadows, bits in the mouth of horses, ships driven by strong winds, forests set aflame by a spark, fresh and salt water. You know what's really great about that? As you go through this book, just like Jesus, who would take up a mustard seed and start talking about what the kingdom of God is like, James takes incredibly accessible things, not only accessible in our day and age, but think about this. Through the centuries, these are common things that people can grab onto and all of a sudden have a little hook, a little handle. What's the kingdom of God like? What's it all about? What am I supposed to be doing? He comes along and says, look at a ship, tiny little rudder, right? What's he talking about there? Our tongue. Tongue's a tiny little part of the body, but it does a lot to control a person's destiny. Wow. Some great things as you, some of you love being out in the elements. And uh, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a marvelous picture here of being able to take just and say, man, God's truth is everywhere. And it's all his. So look for it. Capitalize on it. All right. Who wrote the book of James? One guess. James. Very good. Uh, look at James 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, James 1.1 1, 1 says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Really, really simple. James is the half-brother of Jesus. It should be obvious why he's the half-brother, but I'll explain it. Jesus was born of a virgin, so he had the same mother, James did, as Jesus, but a different father. Joseph and Mary, unlike how some teach, went on to bear other children. Mary was a virgin. She didn't remain a virgin after marriage. Okay? There are other kids in the picture. We know this from the Scriptures. James is one of those. Jude is one of those. Two of them ended up writing books of the Bible. So James is the half-brother of Jesus. And here's what's fascinating about him is that he went from a mocking, non-believing brother to one who worshipped his brother as God. James received a special visit from the resurrected Christ and it apparently rocked his world and changed his world forever. There's a place in John where the brothers, it says not even his own brothers, believed him. And they're essentially mocking him, saying, hey, if you're the Christ, go do these things. Go to this big feast. Go show yourself. This is not how you gain notoriety. And they went from a mocking non-believer to one who worships. Now, I have three brothers. I kind of looked up to my two older brothers a lot. Never guilty of worshiping them. Ever. I knew they had faults, Right? They weren't always nice to me. Never worshipped him. But here's James, who turns out to be a worshipper of Jesus, says a lot. He also, to use modern language, he's the senior pastor or lead pastor of the Jerusalem church. We find him presiding over councils, handing down decisions. He's a powerful uh, figure, humanly speaking, in a very prominent institution, the, the, the Jerusalem church. This would be like a very visible church in a prominent city in our day and age. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. Sure, to get a little bit of background on, on who James is, but here's what's really potent about this. How does James identify himself? As the half-brother and senior pastor of the Jerusalem church, James? No. It's right there. What does he say? It's a servant. Yeah. Some of your translations say bondservant and and what a servant is, is it's one who's deprived of all personal freedom. A servant's totally under the control of their master. A servant is one 
who is loyal and obedient in every single way to the Master. James saw knowing Jesus in the flesh of no advantage. I mean, if anyone could have name-dropped here a little bit, could have been James, right? I remember this one time, me and Jesus, you guys didn't have this, but we were in the back seat of the car and we're cruising. He doesn't do that. Listen to 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5.16. This is Paul writing. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him, him thus no longer. In other words, our proximity to Jesus, just because we're related to him and shared a table with him and went to every feast and holiday together with him, that no longer is of any importance to me. We don't regard him in the flesh anymore. We regard him as he is, and that is an eternal spiritual being that is to be worshipped. Here are a couple of powerful implications for us. One is this. I don't know if you've ever had this wish, but once in a while I'm praying or thinking about spiritual matters, and I'm complaining, basically. And I'm complaining to God, saying, God, if only, if only I had walked with Jesus, maybe I'd be able to believe really, really easily. Ever feel that way? If only I'd seen one of the miracles up close and personal. I know I wouldn't be like those in the Bible that still didn't believe and had their eyes blinded. I would be one who would be enlightened and wise, and I'd see you for who you are. If only I'd walked those dusty streets with you, then I'd believe. Here's the reality of it is, not true. James, who had every access to Christ in the flesh, says, I'm not going to regard myself under that anymore. Instead, I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, common complaint of James. You don't see a lot of Jesus in James. We don't see a lot of theology about James. Christ is mentioned a couple of times. First, in the very opening section, you tell me if James didn't elevate the name of Jesus Christ and if James isn't about Christ. Calls him the Lord. Later on in the book, we see exactly the same thing. Here's perhaps, though, one of, the, one of the biggest ways I see Jesus in the book of James. If you were to track, I'm going to show you this later on in the series, but if you were to track the Sermon on the Mount, James was probably there on that mountainside hearing his half-brother, whom he regarded in the flesh possibly at that point, preach a sermon. James is, in effect, it almost reads like a commentary on that sermon. There are so many reference points back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as Jesus' his Sermon on the Mount is recorded that what you see is you see the words, that sermon of Jesus affected James immensely. Here's the second implication for, for how James doesn't identify in the flesh with Christ anymore, and that is this. Some people long for titles and positions in their job, in their family, in their sports team, in their niche. They want to be that guy or that gal, and it carries over into the church. Um, here's, here's one of the reasons that we don't like or want to promote or make a giant deal about titles. Titles can be helpful to people. But we see in the scriptures that the, the, the title that mattered to James, for instance, is bondservant. Fellow servant. Now, James was a prominent leader. Didn't shirk that responsibility. Didn't try to shy away from it. But that wasn't his identity. And so for you, instead of seeking out a title, instead of seeking out a position, just be a bondservant, live a life, and let the other stuff take care of itself. Just a couple implications. How about this? What is the book of James about? Second part of the verse 1 says, To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Over and over again in the book of Ephesians, we kept pointing back to this fact. This letter is written to Christians. Remember that? Over and over we kept saying that. Because that's important to understanding what the author is trying to get at. Here's what we're going to keep looking back to here. James is written to Jewish Christians. It's probably one of the earliest New Testament books written. He's writing it to Jewish Christians who've been scattered abroad. Here is some of the Jewishness of the book. First of all, 12 tribes is kind of code for the nation of Israel. 
and the 12 tribes that are there. Um, he appeals to Jewish heroes of the faith. There's 21 Old Testament books that are cited in the book of James. 21. All the illustrations keep going back to nature, but also to Old Testament heroes. And we're going to look at some of those as the series goes along. This dispersion is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, and it's um, and it's they were scattered due to the persecution in Jerusalem. And this letter was written in essence. Imagine if if we were a congregation and something came along and it spread us all throughout the U.S. and we were all over the place. And I wrote a letter that somehow got to you guys, and um, it was from the heart of a pastor saying. You at one point were in my care. You at one point were in my ministry. We were doing life together. And I'm writing to encourage you in your trial, in your persecution. It's not that persecution is going to come one day. The fact that you're not even here with me is because of persecution. And now that you're trying to start up a new life, wherever that might be, that's also difficult and hard. Let me write a letter to instruct and to encourage you in that. Now, there is some theology in James, and we've tried to capture it this morning and really for our series with this title, Do or Dead. If you look at James, there's two giant parts of Scripture that influence him. If you hear different people preach, and even yourself, think about it. There are parts of the Scripture you quote often, and you like those parts of the Scripture. You've memorized them, you've thought about them a lot, and they come out in your speech. Certainly, authors and teachers do the same thing. James is heavily influenced by the wisdom literature, like Proverbs. His book, actually, of the New Testament reads a lot like the Proverbs. There are some short, pithy things that are power-punching. You're like, wow, that's really accessible. I don't need to be a theologian. I don't need to have gone to four years of schooling to understand that. No one explained the Greek. I just get that, right? A small flame can start a forest fire. Yeah, I got that. So can a tongue, which is small, start a, a fire. Oh, yeah, I totally get that. Right? Easy. So the wisdom literature is really prominent in, in James's heart and life, I believe. And then secondly, we've already mentioned it, which is the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is comparing two kinds of faith. He keeps saying this refrain over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, and then what does he say? Anyone know? But I say to you, you have the law, people of Israel, you've been given the law, You follow it on an external performance show kind of a way, but you've missed the very heart of it, loving obedience. You've heard it said, but I say to you. James actually carries this this same kind of theme on by comparing uh, faith that is alive and faith that is dead. Here's the beauty, is that saving faith will yield a harvest of good works. This is, this is really important for the book of James, for our life. Saving faith will yield a harvest of good works. That's the reality. It's a, it's a foregone conclusion. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says this, For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, it is living by God's power. If you've been misled that Christianity is learning a set of rules, learning to speak a certain way, follow a few basic external things, and then somehow we're, we're in with God, that's exactly what's happened. You've been misled. That's, that's counter to what the Scriptures teach. The series title has it summed up by saying, Do or Dead, Because, like my slip of the tongue, it's a play on do or die, right? Do or die is what I thought about with this title. When I I first started thinking, I thought it should be called do or die. And then I thought this, the theology is all wrong. Do or die says this, faith without works is dead. Do or die. So you better do a bunch of stuff or else what? Your faith is going to die. Who does that rest on? Me. What happens if I don't do enough good works? Well, it's gonna, you're, 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 you're going to die. You catch that? Here's the subtle change in the title. Do or dead. It's a statement. You, you, are, you are doing these things. You're walking in the new life. You're in the new birth. 
and thus you are seeing a harvest of righteousness. You're doing the deeds in keeping with repentance, as it says elsewhere in the Scriptures. Or else your faith is dead. So you can't muster it up by doing more. It's already done. Here's another way of saying it. Our faith isn't dependent on our sustaining effort, rather on Jesus' finished work. If our faith is dependent on our sustaining effort, you know what that leads to? Fear and exhaustion. Fear, as in, am I doing enough? Is, is, is the scale tipped in my favor or not right now? What if I were to die right now? And exhaustion because you're just, I mean, it's never ending. Instead of hope inducing, that's not good news. That's hope depleting to me. Dave, for the rest of your life, not only are you going to struggle to do the right thing, but you're going to have to just keep doing it more and more and more. And if you don't, if you ever stop, you're out of the grace of God. That goes against everything that the Scriptures teach. Let me illustrate this way. Cassie is our six-year-old. She's six years old today. Now, here's what's really cool about her birthday. It's tax day, okay? In China, they don't care that it's tax day. April 15th is actually just another day to them. But on her birthday, four years ago today, she officially became a Carlson. We met her the day before her birthday, and the way they do it in China is they, they give you the child and they say, here, uh, and you leave with, with, with her relatively soon, like an hour after she's walked into the room. We have her in our car taking home and giving her her first bath and trying to feed her food and hanging out with her. It's a really wild process. 24 hours later, you go back to the same cold government building. You do some foot imprints. You do some signing. You do some different things. You swear a few things. Uh, not, not that kind of swearing, but swearing in kind of a thing. Um, and the next thing you know, they hand you this document, and it says that this child now is yours forever. And she became officially a Carlson right there on that day, on her birthday, which was so profound for us. Now... Her being a Carlson has led to Carlsonness in her behavior. <laughs> and here's the beauty of it. Here's the picture I want you to get. It's not that the more that she acts like a Carlson, the more she becomes a Carlson. Or if she keeps acting like a Carlson, she gets to stay a Carlson, right? It's because she's a Carlson, she now acts like a Carlson. It's inevitable. That's the Christian life. When you're born again, you're born of the Spirit of God. All of a sudden, you have the Spirit of God living in you. You know what starts to happen? You start to act like Jesus. Your life's been transformed by Jesus. Now, is there effort involved? Of course there is. We're going to see that. Be diligent. Persevere. Turn. I mean, those are all action words, right? That involve us. But here's what's beautiful. Cassie doesn't have to, to, to ever worry about something that worried her this week. Listen to this. This shows how maybe anemic our dating life is right now in this season. I'm a massive believer in continuing to date your spouse long after you're married. But it's been a season, okay? We don't go away that much. We're leaving for a date this, this week. We're up at my in-laws. My in-laws are going to watch the kids. We're going to go get away for dinner. Uh, our 15-year-old and my wife are joking around, and um, mom, mom says, we're, we're leaving, and the conversation goes back and forth, and the, the, the joke starts to steer, you're, you're, you're leaving, like leaving for good, like see you later, we'll never see you again. Well, there's a little five-year-old ears that are hearing that. Now, catch this picture, it breaks your heart. With tears in her eyes, Cassie looks up and says, Mommy, don't go, does that mean we're not a family anymore? Here's what's interesting to us. We have four biological kids as well. We've never, ever had our biological kids struggle with those kinds of things. That just welled up in her. What it made us realize is this. Watch our tongue, right? Obviously, mom got down and assured her, no, 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 sweetie, we're a family forever. Us going away doesn't make us not family. That is a settled, done deal that can never and will never be revoked. Christian, 
That's the hope we have. That's the good news of being born again. You're a Christ one. It wasn't dependent on you. Cassie hadn't done one thing, good or bad, to win our favor or so that it might be lost. It was a done deal. That's the picture of grace to us, extended to every single Christian. Now, the reality is, though, here's the test. You will act like a Carlson if you are a Carlson in our family. doesn't mean we're all the same, but there are certain traits. You will love Marianne's ice cream. That's a given, right? (laughs) As a Christian, there are certain traits you will begin to see in your life. It's the inevitable and intended result of the new life. It's beautiful. That freedom that we just sang about, I've never been so free, that's the freedom that we walk in. Do you see how all of a sudden obeying these imperatives, walking in these imperatives, it's all of a sudden not like duty where I have to and it's a big load and I keep taking on more and more. Instead, it's a freedom-giving message. Let me close with this. As we talk through and study through the book of James, we're discussing spiritual growth. And spiritual growth is uh, what I would call uneven. It's messy. It's also very real. It's not something that's always easy to track, but it's real. The key with spiritual growth is this. Oftentimes, spiritual growth doesn't look very spiritual. Many of you people in this room are doing things and involved in things, and in the moment, you don't think it's very spiritual, right? You just did this. You just said that. You just held your tongue here. And sometimes it takes someone else to come along and say, brother, sister, do you realize what just happened? And you're like, no, what? You go, what I just saw was the character of Jesus coming out of your pores. And the old you would have said something really snarky right there, but you didn't. The old you would have never, ever taken notice of that person, and yet you are taking notice of that person. But, but, but I was just, you know, I just saw them, and I thought, they, I know. It doesn't look very spiritual. It doesn't, it doesn't sound like this grand thing, but that's what it is. It's the character of God coming. That's not you. That's not you in the flesh. You don't sustain that. There are marriages in this room that have profound gospel-honoring stories to them because they're still here. They're still sitting next to each other. 2 Timothy 3.5 says this. Paul's writing to Timothy. He's telling about some different people. And at the end of it, he says, avoid these kinds of people. Okay, Here's one of the ones on the list. There are those having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. There are those that will appear really, really godly to you, but they don't, they don't have the power of God in their life. There are those that were holding down people that God created and God loved and needed the gospel, and they were holding them down because they could never attain to their level of righteousness or holiness I know that as a pastor, I've either um, purposefully or inadvertently, I hope more often the latter, I know I've contributed to this. Somehow making it sound as if the Christian life is up here and it's just so unattainable to people. God, forgive me for ever doing that. Jesus comes along and says this, there, those people... I'm angry at because those people are keeping those who need the cold cup of water of the gospel from the cold cup of water by their actions. Paul, in writing to this young pastor, Timothy, says, avoid those kinds of people who appear one way but are denying its power. James is a realist who shows us what, it, what real spiritual growth is in very stark terms. James 2.26 says this, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I don't know if he just came from a funeral or if his dog just died or if he was just thinking, but when you see a corpse and you look at that thing, some of you have endured that. You don't look at that and think that that's grandma and grandpa or your buddy. You just don't. You go, man, there's there's a separation there. 
And he uses this really, really vivid language to say, that's the picture of your faith without putting it into action. James absolutely loves the Word of God. James absolutely leans on prayer. And I would bet James the just didn't miss going to synagogue very often. I think he valued all those things. And yet, friends, let me just tell you this. Spiritual growth does not look like this. Take, you know, two doses of Bible, morning and evening, every day. Wash it down with prayer. Make sure you show up at church once a week, and then you'll spiritually grow. And it should track just like this. People who are telling you that are deceiving you. It's not that you shouldn't be in the Word. You hear me say that all the time. It's not that you shouldn't be praying. You should be without ceasing. It's not that you shouldn't give up meeting together. You should. But it's more than that. That's why I call it messy and uneven. Some of you have tried to be consistent and faithful by studying about it and memorizing definitions and learning about it in church. But that's not where you learn to be consistent and faithful, is it? It's when you go try to live in an unfaithful and inconsistent world and you're trying to be a faithful servant, that's where you start to, to, to learn about it. You don't learn about love by just continuing to love in, in ways that come naturally to you. The ways that come naturally to you and me are to love those who love us back and love those who are like us. Jesus comes along and says this, love your enemies. Love the unlovely. Love the unnoticed. Love the unlovable. You know where you really learn about love? It's when you start loving wildly and taking Jesus at his word. You know how else you do that? You only do that by the power of God. Look at this uh, song by Bebo Norman. He says, never loved anyone by playing it safe. And then he says this, take a breath, take a step. What comes next? God only knows, but here goes. As we start walking in the book of James, here's what I would say to you. Spiritual maturity, growth in the Christian life begins this way. Watch me. It begins this way. Just a step. Okay? And a step down is probably, there's more of a sermon there to that, which is beautiful. It just takes a simple step. You don't have to move to a new city. You don't have to make a big vow. You don't have to write a letter. You just start. You simply start today. That's the beautiful thing about it. Am I encouraging you to fail so that you will grow? Because I promise you, as you try to do these things, as you step out in these imperatives that James lays out, you will fail? The answer is no. I'm encouraging you to grow, which means you will fail. If you look around our church, if you're new to our church, let me give you a little uh, peek under the hood. Okay, There's a few somebodies in this church, but mostly we're nobodies. Okay, Really. And that's who God chooses, and that's okay. And God's the one who makes us somebodies. That's, that's what we've bonded together about. And what we're doing is we're taking simple steps of faith. I can assure you none of us have it all together. I can assure you that the life of a Christian is a life of being on your knees, asking for repentance, receiving God's daily grace, and going on and persevering. I can assure you that the life of being a servant is a life more and more downward and not more and more upward. But it is the most fulfilling and God-honoring life you could possibly imagine. I want to invite the band up right now, and I want to invite you, if you aren't already, to take a step today. For some of you, the step might be this. The step might be, I don't usually go to church on a regular basis. I'm going to start coming to church every single week. That's a really, really good step to take. Some of you have, either by inheritance, your family did this and so you do it, or by choice, you come to church on a regular basis. And it doesn't feel like a normal week unless you've worshipped with God's people. That's fantastic. Here would be my invitation for a step for you. You don't need to be in a community group to somehow be more spiritual at this church. I will say this, that there's a left wing and a right wing to the church. And if all you ever do is you flap the be together on a Sunday wing of the church, 
you're just completely missing out on a whole big part of what the body of Christ is all about. Does that take place perfectly in community groups? Of course not. But community groups is one giant program that we've said we're going we're gonna to pour into this because it's so vastly important. We reject the notion that everything points to this one hour and a half on Sunday. This is where you get your spiritual dose, and then we all scatter and come back next week. We reject that. In the month of May, which is only a couple of weeks away now, um, we, are, we are basically taking this month to say a couple of things. And collectively, individually, and as a family, we're, we're calling on you to simply pray. And in our community groups, the community groups that normally follow a sermon series or normally are going through a book, what we're saying for the month of May is this. We're just going to lay down those questions. We're going to lay down those techniques. We're going to lay down trying to learn a new anything. And we're just going to humble ourselves before God and just seek His face. Now here's what's really beautiful about this. God really put this on our heart as leaders to do this. And later on, I discovered the National Day of Prayer is May 4th. That's kind of a cool thing. The other thing is this. We're not in a building campaign. We're not about to to change things. We're not hunting for staff. We're not doing any. We just feel a sense that God wants us to corporately, as a family, seek his face. If you are not normally a part of a community group, let me tell you this. Our community groups for the month of May are just going to turn into little prayer meetings. So if you feel like, well, I'm not in a community group, I'm not, I'm not in with the study, I don't know where it is, this is a great on-ramp just for four weeks to join a community group and just go and be a part of that prayer meeting during the week. I would venture to say this, it will start to transform your spiritual life. If you come to church on Sunday, you're thinking about him midweek, but you go join with other believers midweek and pray in a home or in a smaller group. And what church is really about on Sundays is those groups of people and others coming together and just celebrating what God's done in our life and and pushing on for the next week. So let me invite you uh, to those ends. And you can find out more about where our groups meet, who to contact, all of that um, on the website and in your bulletin um, today. You can check those things out. Come talk to me. I'd love to point you to one that works for your schedule, that's near you, um, whatever. Let me pray and we'll sing some more. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Jesus, that you saw fit to come and to instruct us in the ways of life in really simple, accessible terms. Thank you for the tangible nature of bread and wine, juice that we can taste and touch and sense and you take those and you attach spiritual meaning to it. I pray, Father, that as we walk forward in learning from the book of James that you would both guard us from pride that would say we're already doing this, this is for other people. Or perhaps worse, that we would begin to find our security and our identity And take pride in all that we're doing for you. Jesus, we affirm today that your finished work on the cross is what was needed to atone for sin. And nothing that we can say or do or ever will say or do can help that process along. And we thank you for that. We rejoice in that this morning. As we give, as we sing right now, I pray God that we would give generously to your work, to what's going on in this neighborhood. As leaders, God, we commit before you that not only will we be trustworthy with the money and dollars that come in in what we spend our money on to be a light to the neighborhood, but that we'll be trustworthy with the lives that are entrusted to us. People's hurts and fears and joys that are entrusted to community group leaders and elders and pastors. God, we stand before you as under-shepherds in submission to you, knowing that as James says, leaders and teachers are going to be judged even more strictly. And so we're under your authority as we lead your sheep. God, I pray that your work of grace would be apparent 
in this place. We promise in advance to keep pointing to you, Christ, as the reason for that and as the one who gets the glory. As we sing, as we give, be glorified right now. And all God's people said, Amen.